Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Iga and Carlos Tennis Show. This is episode two. I am your host, Mancho Mani, and joining me is my co-host, Damien. Damien, how are you doing today? Uh, another Masters 1000 in the bags. Uh, we've got uh, a lot to talk about today with 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 our regards to Iga and Carlos. How are you, my man? Um, yeah, I'm great. Um, you know, the reaction to this has been very positive, overwhelmingly, I would say. So um, that that was good to see. Of course, there's been some negative comments as well, and like people um, telling us that if we jinx these two, they're gonna they're gonna go at us. Uh, you know, when Alcaraz lost and then Svantec lost via retirement, I don't think that quite counts. Like, it would probably count if, uh, you know, we release the first episode and then Alcaraz loses and then Svantec lost almost instantly as well. Uh, but, you know, hopefully Ron Garros will be more in tune with uh, what we think should be happening most of the time when these two are playing on clay. Uh, but um, I guess that's mostly what we're going to be talking about today. Like, what does Rome actually, like, what happened in Rome? Does that matter for Rangaros? Does that change our perspective at all? And um, I guess that's, yeah, that's going to be probably the main theme today. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I too, like you, was was overwhelmed by uh, the amount of comments that came in. And uh, I mean, in terms of a jinx, I don't think we have to worry about these two. I think uh, I think they're here to stay for, for for quite some time. And weeks like this are actually good in a way because uh, it gives us more to talk about, and it's not always just uh, you know trophies at the end mm. of every week. So I guess <laughs> with that in, uh, with that in mind, I mean uh, Alcaraz came into this tournament as a as a pretty big favorite, right? Um, in Rome, and I guess he's the odds favorite heading into Paris now, uh, and we're a week away as we record from the start of the tournament, but. Uh, he got through his first round against Albert Ramos Pinolas, uh, an opponent who, um, you know, he had to save match point against uh, last year uh, in the second round of Roland Garros. And of course, we we actually mentioned Ramos Pinolas last episode as well, because that's sort of the introduction that we got to Carlos back in 2020 in Rio. Um, but he got through that one pretty comfortably and then and then played uh, Fabian Morosian in, in his second match. Uh, what stood out to you about Morosian and the you know the tactics he was able to employ and obviously was a huge underdog coming into the match. It's regarded as one of the ups- upsets of the the decade. Definitely, I wouldn't go far as to say century or anything like that. But what were what were some of the things that stood out to you in terms of Morosian? Yeah, like people thinking that it's this much of an upset is just a, a matter of being unfamiliar with his game. I think. Because yeah. if like you if you know Maroshan at all, you know what sort of tactics he's gonna bring. Like I don't think basically anything he did was like specifically Alcaraz prepared. Like he just plays his own tennis against almost anyone. And that's exactly what makes him so powerful, I think. Um I maybe didn't necessarily think that he was gonna beat Alcaraz, but he certainly has a few of these characteristics that have troubled Carlos recently. Like he just takes the racket out of his hands. And this is I guess something that we also talked about on the first episode. That um one of the ways and uh, like one of the very few ways to beat both Shviontek and Alcaraz is actually to just like make them play your game just make make them um you know make them be unable to uh to dominate you and just keep pouncing on them of course maroshan is just so well equipped to do that when he's firing you know it's not it's never going to be a consistent style of course um you know the way he takes the ball so early the way he plays all these insane drop shots 
And on the day, I mean, he missed like what two of them out of fifteen, probably. Um, and yeah. uh, funnily enough, I mean, recently I've um, I've watched him live in Cagliari against Shelton, and it was like the same. Of course, that's not happening on every Maroshan match, but he definitely has these drop shot days every once in a while. And um, you know, it was it was just uh, marvelous to see for sure. Um, you could probably complain about some of the things with Alcaraz, like maybe he wasn't serving that well, maybe his response to being under pressure wasn't that great. Which um, also you could um, probably mention in the matches with Struff in the final in Madrid with Rusevori, where kind of like when he is rushed, he kind of tends to. Um, you know, instead of maybe trying to play to make the other guy play more balls, which of course he's very well equipped to with with you know with the movement in defense and etc. Uh, instead of doing that, he kind of tries to beat them at their own game, which um, doesn't really work. He starts to rush himself. He starts to you know try to come up with maybe even more ridiculous drop shots than Maroshan was trying was uh, was playing and and it doesn't work out so you could you could complain about some things but of course uh it was just a uh, a perfect day for Maroshan pretty much uh, so hard to compare this to like some other great performances that I've seen from him because you know the stage is different the opponent is so different I, I cannot possibly com- compare it to I don't know when he beat Vatuti in Sekesferhervar in March or something like <laughs> both matches were phenomenal from Maroshan but you cannot really compare these two right um, but you know to, to play some to play a match like this on the, the on the biggest match of his life uh, was of course absurd and um, I don't know if it was on this show or somewhere else as usual I have no idea where I said something but I remember I definitely remember saying that um, an early loss in Rome was wasn't really going to be a setback for Alcaraz at all in my mind it's just that when you looked at his draw there was like no one he could really lose to but of course that was also before the qualifiers came in and like Maroshan kind of gave me this feeling that you know this is the type of opponent that if if uh, Alcaraz is about is going to lose to third round fourth round Rome whatever something like this um yeah I still stand by this opinion that this just doesn't really change much you know uh, playing someone like Maroshan in Paris uh, playing not necessarily maybe the Hungarian you know we'll see if he makes him makes it through the qualifying again but playing someone like that in uh, in a best of five scenario I don't think this is really you know this is really going to be possible I I'm I'm not sure um, if if he plays someone like that uh, just in in a bigger event uh, in a longer format I think that that sort of upset probably does not happen yeah, I think the chances are very small of something like that happening in a best of five setting. I certainly agree with that. Uh, I want to hit on a few things that you mentioned. Obviously, um, you mentioned Alcaraz uh, playing players like this, you know, in the past, and you know, maybe being a bit rushed, rattled, uh, not quite having enough patience to counterpunch with them, and uh, feeling like he needs to do more. And I think, you know, something that stood out to me watching this was the second serve of Alcaraz, won 39% of his second serve points. Now, obviously, that comes down to, um, you know, slow clay and Morosian playing amazing off both wings and, you know, those drop shots. 15 out of 18 drop shots that uh, Morosian won successfully. And uh, Carlos, he was pinning Carlos way behind the baseline and sort of, 
taking so much time away and rushing him, taking the racket out of his hand, that uh, Alcaraz wasn't quite able to anticipate a lot of those or win many of those drop shot cat and mouse exchanges in this match. Um, and when he tried to, I thought Morosian did a great job of closing off the volley when when Carlos did actually get there and he had a lot of the answers uh, when it came to backing up the second shot after the drop shot. And um, that's not something I'm used to seeing Alcaraz come second in. Um, particularly because, like, we've seen him, you know, troubled by uh, Sinner, Rusevori, and Struff this year. But I wouldn't say either of those guys outdueled him in a cat-and-mouse exchange the way uh, Morosian was able to do. So that part certainly was unique to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, Struff, um, Sinner, and Rusevori, they... If they go to the drop shot, it's like, you know, if it's a really good moment, sure, it's going to work out. But Maroshan is just a magician, honestly. And um, yeah, I, I I think this is actually also why Maroshan like plays his best on clay, like specifically just the drop shot. Because if you just think about his game, you know, he, he takes the ball so early that he has a good serve. There's like no reason why he shouldn't be excellent indoors. He's actually pretty good. Like he he made a, some a challenger semi a couple of years ago, a challenger final in Bratislava last year. But over the course of his career, he's played like ninety percent of his matches on clay. And I I really think that like the reason is literally the drop shot, <laughs> because yeah. it's it's such a good um tool in his arsenal. And it's just like for every other player that we've like discussed. Uh, you know, of course, Alcaraz is the is the big one in recent years. But any other anyone any other player who's used the drop shot efficiently, it's just that question of uh, you know he plays so fast of the pounds. Uh, he he you have to be uh, behind the baseline to try to retrieve it. But then there's also that question mark of maybe he's just suddenly going to play that drop shot now. He's also like so good sneaking in. Um, I would say and just stepping forward into the court a bit more while not necessarily like when when you wouldn't really expect it uh the drop shot is also um of course going to be more efficient if he's more forward into the court with the way he positions himself and um yeah it, it's it's definitely a weapon that's pretty rare i would say on the tour right now and uh hopefully we get to see it a lot more because that would be um that would be very refreshing to have maroshan uh on the atp tour in like a more um, yeah, just just way more often than uh, just this one event because this was just his first ATP Tour main draw, right? So yeah, I guess uh, you know, looking at looking at this match and sort of looking at um, the larger view for for Akuras, when he plays players who take the racket out of their hands and who have compact stroke productions, you know, take his shots early, redirect back with pace, um, you know, make Carlos uncomfortable in terms of um, you know not being you know. Yeah, basically not having the time to unload his sort of power tennis and where he can he can be the one dictating on top of the baseline. What sort of adjustments do you think Alcaraz needs to make? Um, I think also, you know, I'm also talking about the return of serve where um, we saw this a lot when he played Struff in Madrid. Really deep return position, um, sort of using... Uh, use his legs to get back into the point right um and try to try to get the ball by by his opponent who's coming at him really quickly basically by uh you know if they're rushing the net you know maybe he has the answers maybe he's able to get a little bit more depth whatever whatever the thing might might be um i did notice at times alcaraz was a little bit um 
unsure about his movement in certain certain situations when he was defending or counter punching, um, and on the return itself, Morosian doesn't have a huge serve, but he was doing a really good job of hitting wide uh, on both the deuce and at sides. He felt like he went wide a lot, and then he was able to sort of, um, yeah, he got something a little shorter to work with. But is there something that you know maybe Alcaraz can do on the return or just generally when he's playing players like this to uh, to counteract what they're throwing at him? I mean, definitely, um, returning serve has not been always like the 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 uh, over the past couple of years. I would say uh, there's definitely been matches when return of serve has been an issue for Alcaraz, and mostly it's been against big servers. I still actually count Maroshan as a big server. Uh, I know his serve is like a bit more clayish, uh, like it's maybe more focused on the angle and what he's gonna play after it than um, than running, uh, you know, that just winning the point uh, with it instantly. Uh, however, he, you know, that's definitely one of the best parts of his game, and whenever he's able to get that first serve in, um, there were definitely games in the um, in the Alcaraz match. Um, I think initially the first serve was maybe not doing that much for Maroshan in the first few games, but then really came in clutch in some in some other moments. Um, there was that game when he was hold, uh, trying to hold um, and win the first set, where he I think just once needed he did, he needed to strike the ball just once I think, other than the serve of course, uh, which was pretty insane. What could Alcaraz do? Um, you know, it's it's kind of hard to say because well, what the serve is just the one part of the game where you don't really have any impact, right, on the opponent. There's that one shot where uh, your opponent controls everything. Um, of course, uh, over the course of his career, Alcaraz has been improving his serve, which definitely has helped uh, him to you know to play against guys like this. Uh, I think this much also and um even the performance on return against Maroshan which i think he he broke him once that was that one four free um game at four free in the yeah. second or three four from Alcaraz's perspective but uh in general did not make any other inroads i think um you know this match probably also could have looked a bit different if there just wasn't that little bit of fatigue kicking in i don't know if mental or physical um, but uh, yeah, playing against someone like like Maroshan or or Struve recently, he has been sort of or Rusovori for that matter, he has been sort of forced to just um, wait out, wait them out, and hope that this you know this this flurry of uh, winners and and crazy serves coming their, their his way is just going to stop at some point. Um, and is there really something to be done about this? I mean, usually it's just it's just really hard against guys like this, I think. And and that's not really only for Alcaraz, right? Uh, players of this um type, players of this character of these characteristics, they tend to be extremely hard for top seeds. Um, you know, wh- whoever it is, really. Um, even someone you know who's uh, I don't know, no Djokovic, Nadal, Federer, they've always struggled against guys like this. Who just if they come out and they redline against you, it's gonna be hard. And and um, uh, definitely what I would like to see from from Alcaraz in such such matchups is just not um, not maybe trying to play the first shot uh, to, to to end the point, not trying to go for too much on the plus one forehand. And not trying to just uh, play some very random drop shots on on his own delivery as he was doing in uh, in most of these actually, and trying to finish the point 
as early as possible. That's like the opposite of what you should be doing. Uh, that's exactly what you should not be doing when you're playing a guy like that. Not you know, don't engage in with him in in what he feels comfortable in. And um, I guess it's it's just very simple to, to to say that, right? I mean, sitting here, um, there's there were a few points when um, in the second set, especially at five all. Um, Mar- Alcaraz had Maroshan just you know moving from one corner to another, and then Maroshan suddenly finds that backhand down the line counter, which most of the match that shot basically didn't exist for the Hungarian, and and then suddenly it it shows up, and uh, even yeah. though Alcaraz did everything right in that point, he still loses it. Um, yeah, so it's not a hundred percent strategy, but uh, I think it's definitely going to be easier to wait it out over the longer format. That's how it's always been, right? less upsets are possible because of that. Uh, but for now, uh, definitely we've seen a bit of a blueprint in terms of how to um, how to handle Alcaraz, how to handle, um, you know, how to just take the racket out of his hand. Then again, I don't think it's really repeatable for most players because most players are simply not going to be comfortable with this sort of play style, right? It's not that easy to adapt to it. It's It's easy if that's your main thing and... You know, then you have a very good match like Joseph Wari had for a set and a half. Um, Struff maybe with more serve and volleying than either Maroshan and um, and Joseph Wari, but also just for for a, for about a set and a half, Maroshan of course actually closed out the you know closed out the match, uh, wrapped up the the job. But um, yeah, he he was able to do it for two sets. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, you're talking about the blueprint. And of course, this match could have gone completely different had, uh, you know, had Alcaraz taken one or two chances in the second mm-hmm. set. He was four one up in the, in the tie break. But Morosian played absolutely insane from one four one four down, uh, to to turn that around. Won the next six points, and uh, you know, there was maybe only one time where where Alcaraz got something out of his serve, but then he went for a first ball drop shot. I think it was at four three. In the in the second set tiebreak, he goes for that inside out forehand drop shot, tries to finish, misses it in the net. So that then... was the one, the, the one he netted, right? Yeah, you're you're yeah. absolutely right for free. And why, why? I I remember just yeah. watching this and that being what? What are you doing? You know, yeah. So it was it was just one of those, and he just he panicked a little bit in that moment. Mm-hmm. And if he, you know, if he wins even one of those next two points, he's still up a mini break and. You know, and then next thing you know, he's like the huge favorite going into the third set, probably because, like you said, like sustaining this level that Morosian was playing insanely difficult. I mean, it's one thing, you know, it's the same same for Rusabori, really. But Alcaraz in that match was able to find some insane magic in the sixth game, the second set, and come out of it, and then sort of carry that momentum. But um, not to be, but we move on, and certainly um, Alcaraz now looking forward to um, to being the top seed at Roland Garros. But um, speaking of that, do you think this is good that Alcaraz lost so early in Rome? Or do you think it would have been maybe more ideal had he lost, you know, let's say, you know, a week and a half before as opposed to two weeks or a week before instead of two? Because it's almost a lot of time, uh, maybe slightly more than you would want. But at the same time, I'm not too concerned. Yeah, maybe slightly more, but I mean, we're assuming that like in the first two rounds, he's probably going to get something that he can, you know, ease his way into the tournament with. 
Um, not overly concerned about this at all. But just just one more thing though that it it really makes you think that you know when he played Rusevori, he hit all these insane shots at yeah. two six two three. And most of them, like, they weren't really smart. He was just suddenly hitting huge serves into Rusevori's body and just getting very risky plus one shots in, especially that half volley, of course, but also the backhand down the line. Uh, there was a forehand inside out, I think, winner. I think that and forehand was more high percentage, but I agree about uh, the... Forehand, forehand was, was the, definitely... The backhand down the um, line, that was certainly very risky. Yeah, the backhand was definitely uh, and, more risky than, volume, than, than yeah. the forehand. And, and, and um, yeah, that, uh, I definitely agree with this. Uh, but um, it kind of makes you think that, you know, the Maroshan loss is fine because he won Madrid, but he was so close to going out so early in Madrid. So, you know, what what if he goes out both in, in, in both events? So... Uh, the margins were definitely very thin, uh, and um, yeah. I don't know if if that's a concern or not. Uh, but losing in the third round at Rome, I don't think so. Uh, you know, yeah, when when you're a top player, like uh, you know, top player, I mean, like a top contender for the uh, for Angaros, I think you're gonna have like a, a round or two when you can just find your footing you're gonna get there early you're gonna get a lot of practices i don't think this matters at all really uh especially you know with, with the fact that he won barcelona madrid uh if he was um you know if, if his clay season up to date was much worse then we would be having a completely different conversation but for now um yeah that that's not a concern, and maybe it's even better for him in a way. I don't know that he lost in the third round uh, than you know in the final in the semis, and maybe arrived in Paris a little fatigued. Then maybe the rest is actually going to help. It, it's that you know it it has its pros, it ha- it has its cons. I don't think it's it's much of a concern though. Yeah, and the good thing for Alcaraz is he knows how to win a slam. You know he's done it now already last year. He knows what it sort of feels like to win seven matches in a row. Uh, best to five sets, and it's and certainly he showed that he's not lacking in endurance because to go almost twenty four hours and win win the U.S. Open super gritty performances oftentimes not his best level. Um, so you know that's something he didn't have, let's say, in the bag going into Roland Garros last year, for instance. And I think this time around he'll also be a little bit fresher physically because um you know last last year he was coming in skipping Rome, I think not a hundred percent going into Roland Garros. And then and and then sort of had to struggled his way past Ramos Villas and then, you know, didn't play a super smart match against Vera for two sets. So I think uh, you know having all those experiences, I think this makes him more secure this time around. Let's just let's just say. But I guess if we switch over more to the rest of the field in general, how big of a favorite do you think Alcaraz Alcaraz is? Do you still put him at the very top? I still have him just at the top. Uh, like, you know, not so much of a difference between him and him and Djokovic, but I still have him. I still have him as the favorite. Obviously, we're recording this when you know Medvedev has won Rome, beating Runa in the final, um, and you know Runa definitely has to be in there. Sitsipas, what's sort of your tier of favorites looking at the looking at the French Open before the draw? Yeah, um, for me, uh, I think I value Alcaraz there higher than most people. Like for me, there's a distant mm-hmm. edge between him and Djokovic right now. Maybe there that wouldn't wouldn't have been the case if Djokovic won Rome or like performed admirably in Rome. He did not. Uh, by perform ad- perform admirably, I would say like I don't know, beat Rune and one more good opponent or something like this, or maybe just uh, play well against someone uh, someone else later. 
I don't think he really did that. So I would say that there is a distant edge for me. Um, Medvedev actually won Rome, right? So he's gonna be the number two seat. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I yep. don't know what what's that's gonna be like because, well, uh, that means there's a fifty percent chance that we get exactly. A but Djokovic like that, that still requires Alcaraz and Djokovic to make it to the semis. Uh, yeah. which, you know, with Alcaraz, I guess I'm kind of sure about Djokovic. We'll see what the draw is like, just because of the fact that he's, you know, he hasn't been in the best match rhythm. So I would say there is a distant edge for me. Um, if Rune won today, I would probably be saying that he's definitely the third favorite for Garros. I still might be saying that. I don't think Tsitsipas is a real contender. Like, he's just not beating someone in the final, in the semis, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for him, a match like this, uh, semi-final against Medvedev in Rome, I think that's so crucial for him to win this, uh, both, for, both for his confidence and, like, for him to actually, well, that, that's related to confidence, but this is his surface, right? This is where he should be um, trying to get that slam. This is where he should be beating someone like Medvedev, who actually, like, dislikes it. I mean, maybe not anymore, but um, still... And um, I think this is a big hit to him. And um, it kind of makes me like not believe in his ability to win Ron Garros. I don't know if I believe in Medvedev's ability to win Ron Garros. I mean, maybe if Alcaraz and Djokovic get cleared out. But for me, there is still a distant edge uh, when it comes to Alcaraz, Djokovic. Yes, um, I, I would definitely say that uh, Alcaraz is still the biggest favorite. I think he is definitely the most likely of the... Uh, well, top four seeds of the top um, few favorites to get to the semis. And uh, once he's there, like if, if Alcaraz and Djokovic were to play a best of five match tomorrow, I wouldn't really believe in Djokovic's chances that much. That, of course, might change after we see the first week, uh, the first yeah. five matches, if, if they are in the same section. Uh, but for now, like if they were to play tomorrow, I would definitely be giving Alcaraz quite a bit of an edge. Yeah, no, I think that's pretty fair. I think if they were to play tomorrow, I certainly have Alcaraz yeah. winning that in, you know, even in best of five. But man, I'm always just so wary of counting out these, counting out Djokovic and Nadal, just because how many times I've been burned in the past by them sort of finding out a way in best of five to just, you know, clicking it all together. And uh, and particularly Djokovic, because like, you know, in best of five, just knows how to manage matches a lot better than most. And just... You know, with Nadal not being there, you know, it's just, uh, you know, he he hasn't looked the same, though. Like, that's the thing. Like, you know, you watch him in Rome and you watch him against Runa and he sort of got outplayed in his own game for large portions of that match from the baseline. Um, Runa winning most of the rallies over, over five, over nine shots. And, you know, it wasn't really that shocking. So I guess, um, but yeah, I mean, so certainly I have Alcaraz one, I have Djokovic second. I think third is still going with Runa, just because you know he just if you look at the totality of the clay season and the fact that he beat Tsitsipas last year at Roland Garros, I just think you know I still struggle to see him win the whole thing just because seven matches, best of five sets, he did run out of gas a little bit you know today against Medvedev, and so I just wonder if there's a really long match, how does he sort of bounce back from that and do it seven times, three out of five, um, you know, with sometimes physical issues present. Focus can waver in and out, um, you know, a lot riding on every single match. He plays a lot of buzz, a lot of moments where people have controversial opinions, let's just say. So I guess, you know, that being said, I don't know how he'll handle all of that for the first time, really truly coming in as a favorite, but I have him third. And then I probably have Setsapas fourth. 
you know, which, yeah, I mean, like you said, I'm not as encouraged by, you know, I think had he made the final, had he won the thing, that would have convinced me more in Rome because I actually did feel like this was a really important tournament for Tsitsipas and narratively he sort of, you know, didn't perform up to up to caliber, right? So I guess, um, and then, you know, maybe Medvedev is fifth now just because, you, you know, he's... He's he's now won Rome and he's he's added these new you know particularly the forehand doing so much damage on these clay courts, and uh, just so hard to hit through. Um, but you know we'll also see about in Paris where the clay is a little different and I think it helped it helped him this week that it was uh, muddy and the ball was able the ball was staying super low, and it was really heavy conditions where he didn't have to slide a ton. So I think that that uh, certainly helped him where he could essentially play his hard court game. And, and have it work um, in most areas. Yeah, I mean, so I, I think we'll have a better idea when the when the actual draw comes out. Yeah, These qualifiers are placed. I think, uh, you know, maybe we can do a show after that and then we'll certainly have some more, uh, some more good picks. But uh, if we switch over to the women's side, obviously, um, Shviatek, two-time defending champion in Rome. Um, this is usually Iga's strongest tournament, you know, along with Roland Garros. And... I thought she was looking very good, honestly. The first two three matches that she played was routine Iga stuff, um, playing pretty, pretty well from the baseline. Like just returning, you know, exceptionally well. Like not giving many games to opponents, and then came the question of okay, she's playing Rabakina, and um, you know, in, when they last played in Indian Wells, Shvantec was was struggling with a rib injury, and of course, you know, Rabakina's quick style. First strike tennis off the serve and the return um, was causing a lot of problems for for Iga. I felt like this, you know this was di- this was a different start for Iga uh, compared to uh, Indian Wells and Australian Open. Obviously, completely different conditions that night. Very slow, um, you know, surface and, and and all of that. We know we know how much uh, bigger of an advantage you would think Iga would have in these conditions, and it it certainly played out that way, right? For the first set and a half, six two four two up, had a break chance to go up. Uh, 5-2 and potentially start about a 6-2, 6-2 win. Uh, Rabakina, to her credit, played a good return game, I guess, at 4-3. Uh, Chiantek felt the pressure a tiny bit, maybe um, didn't quite have the margins reined in, uh, and then it was 4-all and she had more chances to break, and each time Rabakina came up with big serves, and you know that's certainly a feature of her game that works on anything uh, for, for Elena, because it's one of the most, uh, maybe the most accurate serve right now in women's tennis, because she can hit all four corners, and it's extremely versatile, I guess, and uh, it just puts her in a big advantage to win win easy points. Even on really slow slow courts, it, she makes it look quick. But I think, uh, but I think the main story is that Iga definitely hurt herself in the tiebreak. Um, she felt a sharp pain in her knee, and eventually it was obviously a left thigh injury. She had uh, left the court after the second set, got it warmed up, played a couple of games, and it looked like she maybe potentially would play through it. But it seemed very dangerous, obviously, with Roland Garros coming up and. Um, certainly hampered her movement. So from that standpoint, she's she was out of the tournament and then Rubakina ended up winning the whole thing. Um, as we stand right now, she beat Kalanina in the final and what was a really late start to the women's final on Saturday. Um, and Kalinina had nothing left in the tank and had to retire first game of the second set. But does it really change your opinion uh, on Shriantek? Maybe, maybe there's a few more health concerns. Maybe I think it seems like she's going to be good to go for Roland Garros. And if she is good to go, I mean, do you see any potential challenges in the way of her winning a fourth title? 
You know, she was 6-4-2 up, right? Yeah. As you said, I, I, I do think that Rybakina played an excellent return game uh, to get back into it. So it yeah. maybe wasn't exactly like uh, Świątek Aleksandrowa recently when she also let a lead go and then had to win it in the third set. Um, I, I think this was a little different. Of course, Rybakina uh, somehow performed so, so well on slow clay, which... Um, it's a bit of a surprise, but it's not like this is the first time we've seen this. I mean, she's won like what her first WTA Tour title in Bucharest, I think, then uh, finished runner-up in Strasbourg. Also, the past two editions of Rome, she was also going deep. Um, you know, I can't necessarily explain it, but you know that that's how it is, and I guess we just have to, uh, we just have to leave with that. And um, does that change my opinion at all? Um, Probably not. Like she is, of course, still the overwhelming favorite. Um, there's been a bit of a lack of other contenders on slow clay, which I guess we we could talk about a bit later. But um, over the the past couple of years, I think definitely there's like a few players on the WTA tour who perform very well in Stuttgart or Madrid, but Rome, Paris. Uh, you know, if not for Świątek, it's gonna be actually hard to find any other huge contenders for the title. Um, that was, of course, based also on the assumption that Rybakina would be very fragile. And she definitely didn't do anything in Stuttgart and Madrid that would make you feel that she was going to be a contender for Rome. Uh, but, um, you know, all the other uh, players that Świątek usually struggles with uh, in Paris, they're going to have a hard time getting through to her. Um, even in the Rybakina matchup, which, of course, has been very challenging for her. If you if you think of like where she wants to play Rybakina, it's probably Rome and Paris. Yeah. Um. So did that match going like it did change it? Change my perception a bit? Maybe a little. Um. I mean, even before the uh the injury, Rybakina was still in the match, right? She was yeah. still in the match. Um. Does that mean she will be more dangerous to Świątek at Ron Garros than I thought if they play? Yes, but um, if they play is probably also one of the yeah. <laughs> one of the key aspects of this, right? Yeah. Because we are expecting Świątek to go deep for sure, and all of the other contenders are so much more vulnerable, and that's why you still really cannot look look past Świątek. Uh, but yeah, maybe maybe she's actually uh, a bit more. Well, I, I don't want to say fragile because it's not like she was fragile, but maybe the couple of players who are just peaking this year. They're actually also dangerous to her uh, in these conditions. But again, they actually need to get to that much. So uh, that's going to be, I guess, the big question, whether Rybakina, Sabalenka, whether they can set up a meeting with Świątek. And um, if, if, if that's like the question, whether my certainty, whether my um, belief in Iga winning when she is going to play Sabalenka or Rybakina in Paris, let's say, is going to be higher or lower after Rome, it's actually going to be a bit lower. But it's not, you know, it, it's nothing crazy. Uh, I still, def and I still definitely feel like, um, and I guess that's similar with what I said with Alcaraz as well, that compared to all the other contenders, she definitely has the best chance at getting to the semis. And then who knows who else is in the semis and like all the final. Anyways, yeah, no, I was just going to say that, uh, uh, you know, had Iga come through this match, she would have been a firm favorite to win this, win, win the next two rounds and come through with the with the title, and then we'd probably have a very, we'd pretty much have the same perception that we we had before this tournament started, right? 
yeah, she was definitely going to be the, the the main favorite to win the whole thing after uh, after she uh, well if she beat Rybakina hundred uh, percent, and that's also maybe something that um, that also points to the fact that there's just not, not that many slow clay contenders because then you have someone like Kudermetova Kalinina the semifinals, and um, I'm I'm not saying I mean no disrespect to them whatsoever, but. Um, you know that they simply don't pose a threat to Shiontek. And the last few times Kudermetova played Shiontek, it was um, just a big disaster for the Russian. And honestly, I think if they played again, probably the yeah. same would happen. And um, yeah. Kalinina, yeah, does she have that sort of ability to redline and take the racket out of Shiontek's hands? I don't think so. And in in, in conditions that are so perfect for the Poles game. You probably need to do that. I think um, it's going to be very hard for like a more defense, more defense-oriented player to, or like maybe not necessarily defense-oriented, but yeah, to just a player who doesn't really um, pressurize yeah, the opponent as much. Weapon. Yeah, you need yeah. like some really big weapons. To yeah, it's going to be hard for someone like this to beat Shiontek. Uh, I think uh, on slow clay at all, uh, at least. Yeah, uh, definitely in agreement there. I think, uh, yeah, I think the fact, though, that Ribokina was able to break back and stay in the match, I think for Elena's perspective, that will give her a lot of confidence. Just knowing that, okay, on this really slow stuff, I can I can hang with Eva for at least a set and uh, certainly put some doubts in her, in her mind, especially with how good and accurate that serve is. Um, and given that she has made the quarters of Roland Garros before, having also having won a clay title, um, she's certainly, I guess, yeah, more more of a threat than people were giving credit for, giving her credit for before this tournament. Um, so maybe that changes things a little bit, but I don't think enough to, to be really concerned about Shantek going in as the, going in going in as the favorite, and she's much more likely, let's say, to get to the semis and finals, than even Ribakina is. And you know, even Sabalenka, she can have she can have an off day like she had in in Rome. And you know, many people were saying, you know, it was, you know, she needed a break, and she had come through winning Madrid. And we talked about that match uh, on the last episode that Sabalenka mm-hmm. won one of the one of the really good finals of the year. But um, and we were saying that uh, you know maybe it's it'll be interesting to see how that transition is from altitude to sea level. And certainly, you know, she had a very off day and played a very good opponent on the day in Cannon. And uh, and and that was really it. And you know, in in women's tennis, there is no best of five in the slams, and margins are even smaller. And that's where I think Iga has the highest floor of any of these top seeds. So I just feel like that high floor is just going to make her a lot less upset proof. I mean, a, a lot a lot more upset proof. Uh, yeah, a lot more a lot more upset proof. Um, less likely to get upset. That's what I mean. No, I mean hundred uh, percent. She basically, maybe from the match against um, Krejcikova in two thousand twenty one in Rome, when she like barely fought through and saved match points. Like maybe maybe since then we haven't really seen. Um, well, I guess that that um, at, against Sakari at the French that year as well. But uh, like probably since then we haven't really seen a weak performance from Shvontek on clay. I mean, there's been better ones. There's been worse ones. That's natural. But yeah, yeah. that floor is insanely high, really. And She had a streak going where she won 25 sets in a row in Rome. 
after yeah. you know after losing the first set against Kritikova. I mean that's after like, that much, right? Yeah. yeah that's and she has she has so much margin in her game compared to Sabalenka, compared to Rybakina as well, to all of these flat hitters. Um I guess a lot of that comes from, you know, the extreme top spin, so rare in the women's game as well on the forehand. And um yeah, yeah even even when she's not feeling it, she can still uh, you know, she still has, uh, uh, well, maybe not necessarily, I wouldn't say she has a plan B, but she can definitely just hit with more margin and um, somehow ease her way into a, into the match. Sabalenka, Rybakina, they don't really have that sort of um, ability. So, so yeah, I 100% agree that she is pretty much a lock unless something incredible happens to, you know, to make the semis. So while... I am less confident in the Rybakina in the Sabalenka matchup right now than I was before the start of the clay season, maybe even. Um, let's see if they actually, if these matches happen first. Yeah, for sure. It's never a given. Um, but if we look at sort of the the rest of the field, maybe branch out of the top 10, uh, you know, a little bit or just however you, however you'd like, you know, who are some players that have sort of caught your eye on the women's tour that you think, you know, again, Deep run, maybe potentially challenge Ika. There's a few players who haven't really, I haven't really seen play Ika yet that I'm curious to see how that'll mm-hmm. turn out. Two of them, I'll give you just off the top of my head. Number one, Paula Bedosa. Uh, you know, she's been, you know, playing a lot better this year. Like we've been, we've been saying, like uh, her ranking doesn't really do justice to the level of tennis that she's playing right now. Um, obviously, coming off of a, a good, decent showing in Rome, um, you know, certainly getting a little bit better each each week and you know more more of that firepower more of that confidence from 2021 indian wells and uh, the first third of 2022 i think uh starting to come back she hasn't made it past the quarterfinals of any slam um but certainly if there was going to be one i think it would be at roland garros um but so so she's definitely one to watch um i'd be interested to see if she played Chiantek, what what that would look like Another one for me is Karolina Mukhova, who just struggles to stay healthy. But when she's when she's healthy, she has maybe the sort of variety and maybe a few different looks that she could potentially throw that could, you know, maybe force Strontek to, I don't know, generate from slice backhands or like just um, you know, maybe it will make make it harder for that top spin forehand to to work, but maybe not. Maybe it could even just play into her hands and maybe it just strengthens uh her strength, which is her footwork, even more. So I think, uh, I mean, I mean, that's if I were to pinpoint sort of one thing, Damien, that I think really separates Iga from the rest of the field. I think mm-hmm. it is her footwork and her movement because, you know, you just look at those quick adjustment steps that she takes to center herself around the ball and just how, how in position she is. Like if you actually go and watch her live, I think you'll see like just what a dynamic mover she is, really, like in the corners and just. It seems, you know, it seems almost Djokovician esque when you watch her defend and move just because she has that ability to hit open stance off the backhand in particular that I think is uh, almost in, impenetrable because offensively she's very good with the backhand taking it really early, but also just defensively she just resets a lot of points that way. And it's just, uh, it's maybe not something that's very dynamic when you watch it on the TV, but it really stands out when you go in and you and you see her live and it just gets even better on a clay court because I've only seen her on, you know, at Indian Wells or at San, in San Diego when she's played past couple of years but um certainly like Mohova is one I have you know um Bedosa as well I don't really I'm trying to think of sort of other players maybe outside the top top 32 but 
again, this will become a lot more clearer when we actually have the draws in front of us. Yeah, I've actually only watched her on clay live, so <laughs> I can I can only speak about that. Um, Shiontek, of course. Um, I think this was before we started the the show, so I don't think um I don't think I I was able to mention that in the first episode, but um uh-huh. I was actually having a discussion um about the movement of Świątek uh, in Stutt- when she played in Stuttgart against Pliskova. And um, I was watching that at a party and I was a bit intoxicated and a friend of mine was there and he also wanted to watch the match. So we just sat down and watched um, Shontek's match on the phone and we, you know, just got to talking. He's like a more, a more of a casual tennis fan. And I gave yeah. him like a huge lecture about why Shiontek's uh, movement is actually like her best shot. Of course, I know movement is not the best shot, but like, you know, the, the, the biggest yeah. advantage that she has over other players um, with uh, forehand being the second best. Um, that's that, you know, that, that was the whole point of the lecture. Uh, honestly, in the past like couple of weeks, I've seen um, a few matches from Shiontek where I, 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 I was sort of thinking before the match, um, you know, this is an opponent that can trouble her. Um, this opponent has this and that. And one of them was, for example, Petra Martic with the, the big serve, yeah. the insane variety. And then she plays like you know, 10 times worse than in her previous match against Świątek. Um, the other was Bernarda Pera, you know, such an excellent clay court player, uh, huge lefty topspin forehand. And then the same thing happens, I guess. Some of that is probably the weight of shot that Świątek has, which maybe also the extreme topspin, which is a bit, yeah, just so rare on the on the women's side. So maybe she actually makes them play like this. Uh, but because of that, um, <laughs> I I started like really doubting myself whenever I uh, I see a Świątek match and I'm like, mm, this is an opponent that can probably trouble her because most of the time that actually ends so poorly. Uh, I remember thinking even not on clay that, I don't know, Samsonova was such a tough opponent for her, right? And then she crushes her in Dubai. Um, so I, I really um, um, find myself a bit unable to uh, <laughs> to, to understand sometimes, uh, like uh, who's going to make Świątek tick, let's say. Yeah. I would definitely love to see another match between the, between her and Kim Van Zheng at Rangaros. Last year we had it and it was the, well, I don't know if you can say the toughest test, but we probably can, you know, because she took the first set, even though the next two weren't competitive, but also she wasn't, uh, well, Zheng wasn't all right physically. So if that was to happen again, that would be very exciting just to see maybe how this match would pan out uh, in full if if Zheng was uh, was able to give her best over the, the course of two or three sets. Um one uh, opponent that I think Świątek really doesn't want to play, like outside the top ten, is Ostapenko as well. Yes, of course she can't really she can't really run into her like before what the fourth round or something. But um, that's someone that I think uh, she would be frightened of, and for all the right reasons. Um, Ostapenko has been so excellent at like targeting players with I think um, just maybe one weakness that she can uh, expose of course it's not like uh, the Świątek forehand is something like the golf forehand or something but um, Ostapenko I think she's really good when she has that one target she can go for and um, yeah that that's someone that I think would uh, really be able to trouble Świątek of course it's Ostapenko so it's also possible that she would lose winning like two games because you know just wouldn't be um, yeah. one of her days Plus but, the serve um, and the the serve and the movement, I think, uh, 
Mm-hmm. But that's if Shantek is able to get into the point. You know, that's the thing is, yeah, with with Ostapenko's ability to just last balls from both the forehand and and backhand, yeah. basically with her eyes closed, and just if she has one of those days where it's, you know, catches fire. I'm not sure there's anything most players can really do. Um. So yeah, I think I think that's a good shout. Uh, Alexandrova potentially another one, but that's, you know. Uh, so where is the version of Ostapenko in a way? <laughs> yeah. No, I, no. I was thinking, you know, just like you were thinking. About bigger Rivera, serve, I was thinking, but... I was thinking maybe Jill Teichman. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah. But I think Fairly it might similar. be It might be pretty similar to Para in that sense. I think most of these players, when they just they're just not used to that heaviness of the, of the yeah. ball, you know. And when we say heavy, it's yeah. a combination of speed and spin, right? It's like speed plus spin plus rotations. That make it, you know, so you're basically having to to take the ball. And like unless you're really good at hitting on the rise, it's it's really difficult to counteract the heaviness because it's just gonna push you back. Yeah, absolutely. And I I, th- I think that's why um like that that was the conclusion I came to when I started watching these matches like against Pera Martic, yeah. Uh players who theoretically are just expert clay quarters who should be troubling Iga, who have like Martic for me, like thinking of this matchup was like a mini version of Krejcikova in a way, and then yeah. she just comes out and she looks like she you know, it's it's like the first time she's holding a rocket against Sviontek. and uh, I don't think it's the aura of invincibility. I I do think it's that sort of heavy ball that they're not used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but certainly, yeah. I mean, if you're an Ego fan, like I don't think this. Other than the fact that she hasn't won a big title since the U.S. Open and that she's lost the two 1,000 finals that she's played and that, okay, maybe statistically she's number three in the race or, you know, maybe there's a chance that, you know, Sabalenka will overtake her for number one. I mean, just purely looking at the stats and the numbers, you might you might say, okay, well, yeah, she has two rivals now at the very top of the game. And, you know, in 2023, we could say there's a new big three in the first five months of the year. But I, I don't think narratively... It, it changes much, you know, if she if she, if she wins Roland Garros, because I think then we're just back to the same place that we were, whether we were last year. Obviously, we don't have the whole thirty-seven match win streak coming in and all of those sort of question marks that we had last year. I just think the women's tour is just more used to more used to it now. Like I think when Barty retired, it was just, you know, we didn't really know. Like you know, like it was basically Shvantec and everyone else, right? We didn't really have a clear picture of where the WTA landscape is is headed. Like, who even was the number two player for, for the longest time last year? Um, we, we didn't really even have an answer to that. I mean, I mean, because you had, like, you know, Bedosa was number two for a while. Sakari was like about to become number two. She was third. And then it was like, you know, okay, maybe maybe Jabor in the grass season. Like, but, you know, it's... Uh, there weren't... There just weren't many contenders. And now I just feel like there, there are because they've... And they... You know, they've seen what Iga has done last year and it's sort of, you know, the overall level I do feel like is in a much better place coming into the to the French this year. There was no number two player until the end of the year, I guess you would say. Maybe Karen Garcia became that yeah. in the in the latter half of the season. Uh, but uh, yeah, right now there are simply like, three main contenders, even when they are not contenders, you would think. So Rome... Uh, one of them still actually steps up and 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 wins it. So yeah, that's uh, definitely more. Ex- well, I mean, uh, the the quality has gone up hundred yeah. percent. So in that I way, it's that's definitely more exciting. If maybe someone likes 
uh, you know, to have a broader scope and to have maybe some more randomness, then maybe he he enjoyed, uh, he or she enjoyed 2022 more. Uh, but I would say the quality definitely has gone up. And seeing these players battle each other, and also as often as they have so far, Świątek Rybakina Sabalenka this year, like it's been an actual full-fledged uh, free-piece uh, free rivalry, I don't know how to, how to call it, yeah. tri- trivalry or whatever. And that's, of course, made possible by the fact that they keep getting uh, they keep getting to the deep stages of events. And uh, that's something that last year wasn't really possible. There, there weren't any huge rivalries at the top because yeah. it was, yeah, Świątek and then some player, some other players reaching this, reaching that. So, yeah, um, that's that's definitely, uh, for me, it's it's more exciting and definitely brings out some, like, brings out the best talents out of all three women. Maybe you would say that Świątek, maybe not necessarily yet, but uh, Sabalenka and Rybakina for sure. And Yeah. So, but uh, with that, yeah, I think we pretty much hit on everything. Uh, conclusions from Rome, as well as just, uh, you know, our thoughts on Carlos and Iga generally, but also on uh, just micro-topic-wise leading into the French Open. Uh, we'll definitely have uh, an episode once the draws come out as well, so stay tuned for that. Uh, check out check us out on Twitter at, at Iga Carlos Tennis Show. Uh, at Iga Carlos Tennis is actually our Twitter handle, so check that one out. Uh and uh, give us a rating or review on Apple or Spotify. Um, and yeah, uh, the more episodes we could do, I think we're going to have so much to talk about this next, uh, these next few weeks. And uh, yeah, uh, so all, all the support is much appreciated. And yeah, thank you, Damien, uh, as well for uh, editing the episodes and putting them up on Spotify and Apple for our listeners. Uh, great work there as well. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely be, be back with, with more. Um, so thanks, Damien. No worries. Um, I think this was a very good ep- this episode two for our for our show, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed it. And yeah, see you see you soon.